U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am rejoined by my XO, the one, the only, the Christoph. Thank you, sir. Uh, potatoes are all peeled. I'm ready for uh, re-engagement into the podcast. So last time we were talking about the history of the battleship. Yes, because a listener wanted to know about the history of the battleship. So we said, let's talk about the history of the battleship, and that's what we were doing. So we're going into World War I with the battleships now. So are you ready to get underway? Indeed, yeah. Can't wait. It should be good. Let's do it. So because of geography, the Royal Navy was able to use her battleships and battle cruisers fleet to impose a very successful blockade on Germany. And this kept Germany's smaller battleship fleet, you know, bottled up in the North Sea. The narrow channels that led to the Atlantic Oceans. Oceans, like there's multiple (laughs) Atlantic Oceans. So the narrow channels that led to the Atlantic Ocean were also guarded by British forces. So they had them like a chokehold. Because, you know, both sides were aware of that because of the greater number of the British battleships or dreadnoughts. If uh, the Germans and the British went head-to-head in a fight, more than likely the British would tr- would destroy the German Navy. What the German Navy had decided to try to do was to provoke an engagement onto their terms. It was to either induce a part of the Grand Fleet to enter by itself or to fight close to the German coastline where they can take advantage of minefields, torpedo boats, and submarines. Okay. But, you know, this didn't happen because they needed to keep the submarines for the Atlantic campaign because these submarines were the only vessels able to break out of the blockade and raid British commerce. Now, even though they were successful and sank many merchantmen, they were not able to do a counter blockade on the UK coast because, you know, the Royal Navy, they didn't just sit back. They sat there and learned. So they developed successful convoy tactics to battle this submarine threat. I heard that um, that was actually proposed by Winston Churchill because initially it was just one ship at a time going across to America, for example. But if the one got found, it was lost. But if there was a group of them, they would only get... like It was reduced in the ability for the Germans to be able to find them, maybe? Like they weren't as scattered? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that works. But it seemed very successful. Well, the more boats you get together, the easier it is to keep a lookout. Also, you got one sub come against a convoy of these merchantmen. These merchantmen were armed. I see. These merchantmen fought back. A lot of people don't realize that the merchantmen during World War One, World War Two, they fought back. They weren't just sitting there hoping that they weren't going to get hit. I see. Okay. So it's basically uh, a greater amount of firepower 
that the the Germans would have to go up against, and it wasn't as wise to engage in that situation. Right. And, you know, also the submarines during the World War One era, you know, are not as good as they are today or even during the World War Two era. A lot less time they could spend under the water. A lot right. of times they would have to surface to even fire. So, I mean, safety in numbers. Right. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. And I can see as why that would improve commerce as opposed to the way it was uh, being disrupted before. Yeah. So the first couple of years saw the Royal Navy battleships and battlecruisers sweep the North Sea on a regular basis, making sure that no German ships could get in or out. There were only a couple of German surface ships at sea already, such as the light cruiser, the SMS Emden, and these boats were able to raid their co raid commerce. But, you know, even if a boat did slip through, they were hunted down pretty quickly by, you know, the battle cruisers. This happened, like, during the Battle of the Falcons in 1914. The sweeps that the uh, British were doing resulted in a number of battles in the North Sea. And it also... And also, the, 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 the few Germans that were able to break out, they decided they were going to raid the English coast. We're not going after boats. We're going to go raid the coast. That's pretty bold. Well, they were also trying to lure out portions of the English fleet because they couldn't take them out all at once, so they're going to try to take out little bits by little bits. Right. So in 1916, on May 31st, the German tried to draw them out again. And this was the Battle of Jutland. Oh, okay, yes. I I'm sure you've heard of that battle. I have heard of that one. Uh, you know, so the German fleet, they left to port after, you know, two little encounters with the British fleet that, you know, really royally messed the Germans up. Uh... A couple of months later, even after they were soundly defeated, they tried to again draw portions of the Grand Fleet into battle. This resulted in a battle on August 19th, 1916. It is not named in a flowery descriptive name, but this ended up pretty much a tie. That's not bad. I mean, given the inferior German Navy, that's, yeah. that's practically a win. Yeah, practically. But this, you know, reinforced the German determination to not take on the entire fleet in battle. You know, like, fleet-to-fleet -fleet battles are not good for us. Let's try to keep this, you know, to single engagements again. Makes sense. In, you know, other naval theaters, there were no really decisive battles. There was a Black Sea engagement between Russia and Ottoman battleships. And this was pretty much, you know, just skirmishes. In the Baltic Sea, this was mainly just convoy raiding and mine laying. The only real clash of battleships was at the Battle of Moon Sound. 
where a Russia lost a pre-dreadnought. Then we have the Adriatic. There was the Austro-Hungarian dreadnought fleet. They were pretty much this went the way of the Germans because they were bottled up by the British and French blockade. Mm-hmm. In the Mediterranean, the battleships were used in a amphibious assault on Gallipoli. Oh yeah, that I've heard of that one. That's not the best moment in uh, for the English, unfortunately. So that brings us to September 1914, when the German U-boats really started being successful. They were mainly going after cruisers, thankfully not the battleships. There was a German submarine, the SMU-9, that sank three battle cruisers. Dang. In less than an hour. Whoa. That's impressive. Then a they took out the super dreadnought HMS Adrocious. I'm I'm sorry, what was that again? The HMS Adrocious. Okay. I thought you said atrocious, which would be a terrible name for a ship. Well, she got hit by a line laid by a German U boat. And apparently one mine was all it took to take to take out this super dreadnought. She sank. Yeah, So these were, you mentioned in the last episode, we talked about battleships, that these were really expensive, like took years to build, get these capital ships. Uh, losing a battleship in battle, that was a big deal. I mean, just a huge hit to the economy of the nation, right? Losing a battleship, period, whether it's in battle or whether it's in an accident or weather-related or whatnot. Yeah, they're expensive. Big expense plus the loss of life because you have, you know, oh, yeah, hundreds of men having uh operating these. And so, was this? I know, um, when they the English went to the dreadnought and then the post dreadnought era where they were kind of on the vanguard of developing the technology for these incredible ships, it seems like what stopped them or what slowed them down was. Uh, these engagements, or these engagements with the uh, U-boats, right? Because one U-boat could take out, like you said, several battle cruisers in an hour. Yeah, U- U-boats changed naval warfare, made the uh, British rethink their strategy and their tactics in the North Sea because of these U-boat a- attacks. And, you know, it also led to a growing concern on the Royal Navy about the vulnerability of the battleships. So, uh, as the war kept going, it turned out that the submarines did prove very dangerous to older pre-dreadnought battleships. For example, when, oh my lord, this is a German word, I think. Ooh, let's try it together. Go ahead. Misudai? Miss Misudai, I guess. Misudai, Musudai. Who knows? Any German listeners out there? Uh, let us know. Well, anyway, she went down in the Darnells. She was got. She was gobbled by a British submarine, and the HMS Majestic and the HMS Triumph were were torpedoed by U two one. 
you know, as well as the HMS Formidable, Cornwallis, the HMS Britannia. But the threat posed to dreadnoughts, the real guys, the battleships, well, this was mainly a false alarm. Oh, really? That seems... And I, I guess you're going to continue. Go ahead. I'm surprised, but continue. Yeah. Remember when we were talking about the HMS Adrocious? Mm-hmm. Yes. She was the only dreadnought sank by submarine in World War. Okay. That's... I'm... I would have anticipated more uh, battleships sunk by U-boat. Why was she the only one? At least Dreadnought class, rather. Because of armor. Huh. Things of that nature. Yeah, I guess one hit in the right place can decimate a ship. Like, if you get their, uh, their magazine or something. But if it's properly armored, like we talked about previously, that, that makes a huge difference. If you get a chance, uh, well, I don't know where the USS Texas is going after her. She comes out of the yards. I'm not exactly sure. I know she's not going back up to Houston. But anyway, go visit a battleship. Go see how armored those things are. And you'll get a better understanding of why these things were so coveted. Was uh, the USS Texas representative of World War I-style uh, battleships, or was that a World War II? She's, she's World War II. We, I don't think we have any World War I battleships any longer. Okay. Because I have seen um, the USS Alabama, which was a World War II-class battleship, or era battleship, I should say. And you are correct. Those things are incredibly armored. List of museum ships. There we go. <laughs> nice. How about the internet? Amazing. <laughs> uh, you can go see the the NNS Bonnie <laughs> in Nigeria. A Nigerian ship, I assume. Nope, British. British. Okay. Well, yeah, I guess that was around the era of uh, vast European colonization of the African continent. So that makes sense. Yes. Uh, you can see a U.S. tank landing ship in China. China? Yep. Okay. That wasn't on the docket for me to travel to China, but... It's also just a tank landing ship. Is that all? Yeah. Yeah. And it was built in 1944, so... Well. Uh, you can go to Indonesia and see a uh, U.S. ocean liner. Like a cruise ship? Yeah. Well, that's, I see commercials for them all the time. I can just go to Florida or something. Uh, th this was uh, launched in 1914, so it's an old one. Oh, okay. Um, the North Koreans have one of our technical research ships. I think we talked about that before. Uh, yeah, this she was seized in 1968, uh, and they kept her. But she was launched in 44, so she's old, too. Yeah. we got a frigate in South Carolina. I mean, in South Korea. A frigate? And we also have a tank landing ship in South Korea as well. Two of them, actually, that you can go visit. So if you're going to South Korea anytime, go for well, it. Well, uh, I was now planning to visit China, and that's just <laughs> right around the corner. Might as well. <laughs> now, um... 
anybody in Taiwan, if you want to go see a destroyer, World War II destroyer, you can. In Thailand, we have four ships, two frigates, three frigates, and a tank landing ship. So when you say frigates, that those are sail-powered ships, right? Those are the old? No. Okay. That's what I imagine when you say that. What does that mean? It's a classification of ship. Okay. Uh, the classification just shut to, uh, is mostly just what it, type of missions and roles it performs. All right. The frigates during World War II uh, pretty much are anti-submarine escort vessels, larger than a corvette and smaller than a destroyer. Oh, okay. But specifically made for anti-submarine in, in this era? In that era. Wow, cool. Ah, uh, so let's see. Uh, if you're in Turkey, you can see a one of our destroyers. We can see one of our patrol boats. And one of our freights. We sure uh, left a lot of crap everywhere. I mean, not to call our ships crap. Well, no, a lot of these were sold off. Oh. And then they were used in their navies and then retired. Got it. Okay. This is actually really fun. <laughs> we have <laughs> meandered off quite a lot, but it's, it's still fun. Uh... If you want to see a fleet tug, and you're in Argentina, near San Pedro or Buenos Aires, you can see a fleet tug. If you're in Brazil, you can see one of our destroyer escorts. If you're in Colombia, you can see a high-speed transport that was ours. When I think of the words Colombia and high-speed transport, uh... That seems like it's was definitely used for uh, for drug running. I don't know. <laughs> you can see one of our buoy tenders in Estonia. Buoy tenders? Is that just maintain or establish buoys or? Yeah. Okay. They maintain and replace navigational buoys. Well, there we go. It's right there in the name. It is. <laughs> Germany had one of our boats but it got scrapped that would have been a world war one boat too hmm. actually i have a question about that go ahead so with world war one uh, there's a lot of ships being destroyed uh in various naval battles were there many ships captured um because if germany has an american world war one era ship or had one and then scrapped it i would assume that's not something we necessarily sold them since they had their own navy, they had their own ships, right? Um. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of capturing per se. Well, it, it all de depends on the captains, whether they will surrender or not. But yes, after the Age of Sail, uh, there was much, much less surrendering. In the early 1800s, you would surrender, and then you'd be told, okay, go to this specific uh, port and sit. You are out of the war until you are told that you have received word that you have been traded as prisoners of war, things of that nature. Um, as for this boat that was uh, from World War II uh, that, that Germany had, 
it was uh, used up until 1925 when it was sold to a company in Maine. And then it started transporting timber before it was sold to Europe in 1931. And that's how it got to Europe. Wild. That's just so... What a weird history. Yeah. Um, she was sold to Finland, actually, at first, who, who used it, transporting lumber between Finland, Denmark, and England. I imagine it could carry quite a lot of timber. She was then converted into a bark with a steel rig in 1938 and that's when she was completely overhauled and then she was given a figurehead at that time as well <laughs> nice not enough ornamental stuff in life i think <laughs> i think there there needs to be a comeback and then during world war 2 she was used as a cargo training ship and at the end of the war was in Lübeck. That sounds German. That is German. <laughs> I see. That's my trained ear. Yeah. So after the war, she was brought to... Uh, I'm going to butcher this. Travu... Travumanu? <laughs> I know that's completely wrong, but I did my best. She was tugged over to there, and she was converted into a hotel ship. Whoa. Then she was towed into Hamburg, I can say that one, mm -hmm. and was moored there as a hotel and restaurant ship. Uh, then she was not making much money, so she was sold to the Netherlands, and he donated it as a floating youth hostel into his hometown of Delftzijl in the Netherlands. And uh, after 10 years, when they found out she wasn't being profitable there either, she went back to Germany. Who would think that a floating youth hostel would be profitable? That's not exactly a prime investment. Well, I mean, I don't know. But she went back to Germany. She went to Emden. And she was about to be... Re refit her again so she could be used some more as a restaurant ship. They found that, uh, yeah, she started taking on water and then she sunk. Oh, no. So she sunk. They didn't even scrap her. Well, in 60, 1965, it was resold to a merchant and they raised the ship. Oh, okay. And they, he converted it into a floating restaurant. Huh. And she was then moved to the old port of Bremenherhaven. In 1972, she became an exhibit ship. She became a museum. And she was now a restaurant museum and wedding ship. Wedding ship. It's about time. In... Remerhaven, and over time it became a landmark. Huh. Uh, so then she had an accident when she was being repaired for the last time, and since there were there was no more money, only you know the barest essentials are repaired. Mm -hmm. They put in six pumps to you know 
pump out 150 cubic meters of water every day. Ooh, that's a bad sign. And then in 2019, the forecastle between the inner and outer cladding caught fire because of the galley. And she sank to the bottom. So let me get this straight. That was in 2019. Yes. And so this ship was a World War One era ship, right? Yeah, she was born in 1919. Wow. That's that was uh, some pretty solid um, construction, let's say. I know it was repaired and refitted over the years, but that is very impressive. Yeah, she was refitted at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times minimum. But, I mean, after this last bit, they decided, you know what, uh, we're done. We, we're just going to scrap her. Yeah. Okay, so that's a, the American boat in Germany. There we go. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow, we meandered there, didn't we? Indeed, that's that was fun though. Thanks for the trip, Captain. Uh, if you go to Greece, you can see one of our cargo ships. All this to looking for uh, World War One boats that are still in existence for us. Malta has one of our patrol boats. That's a uh, Vietnam era. Okay. Uh, the Netherlands, if you're the Netherlands, you can go see one of our wooden ocean minesweepers. Wooden? I guess that would, um, there were magnetic mines, right? So Yeah, that, that helped uh, quite a bit against magnetic mines. Okay. There are two boats in Alabama. Uh, it's a World War II battleship and uh, a snag boat from uh, 1925. So that's after World War One. Uh, let's see. 1914, there is a sailboat you can see in Alaska. Ah, 1891, there is a schooner that you can go see in San Francisco. Wow. Uh, let's see. World War I. Uh, oh, 1886, there is a full-rigged ship that you can also see in San Francisco. 1898, there is a ferry boat you can see in San Diego. Uh, San Francisco has a schooner built in 1891 and a paddle steamer in 1890, built in 1890. Wow, they sure have a lot of uh, old ships. Uh, World War I tugboat in San Francisco. A steam yacht in San Diego in 1904. You could see a sandbagger sloop in Connecticut, built in the 1880s. A whaler, built in 1841 in Connecticut. Hmm. A sloop, 1866, also in Connecticut. Now, those were built to last. That's, in, that's a very impressive. Well, I mean, they also are taking care of these things. Well, yeah. I can take care of my car, and yet <laughs> it does not last. So, including the Missouri, the in Honolulu, there is the Falls of Clyde. It is the last surviving iron-hulled, four-masted, full-rigged ship and the only surviving sail-driven oil tanker. Huh. That's cool. There's lots of museum ships around the, uh, around where, around the U.S. that you can go see. I'm trying to just find... What you asked for. 
I appreciate your thoroughness. And so do our listeners. <laughs> Uh, 1854, there's a sloop, the Constellation, in Baltimore, in Maryland. Uh, let's see. 1797, uh, the USS Constellation. No, Constitution. Uh, last one was the Constellation. Right. Yeah. This is the Constitution, the old, world's oldest ship afloat, 1797. Incredible. Old Ironsides herself. Uh, 1884, there's a schooner in Massachusetts. We have a Germany boat from World War I in Massachusetts. 1917, okay, a bolt freighter in Michigan. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the right era. Yeah, it is the right era. 1905, passenger steamer in Michigan. Uh, you can see the Cairo, 1862, in Mississippi. I think we talked about her already. Uh, 1907, a light vessel in New York City. Uh, they have a number of older boats. Uh, there's an Oyster Sloop, 1883. Uh, let's see, 1914, they have the SS Lye Valley railroad car float. That's in Brooklyn. They have a schooner from 1893. They have a snow brig from 1813. That's a little bit before World War One. There's an ironclad from 1864. Not sure where that is. That's we. I know know it's in New York somewhere. That's a CSS boat. Wow! No kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a pilot boat. From 1914, there's a schooner from 1885, a uh, light vessel, 1915, there's the era we're looking for. There we go. And in Long Island, there's a sloop of 1880, in, built in 1888. Ah, 1911, uh, there's a bark. Oh, it's German. That's in New York City. Uh, 1901, a canal tugboat. 1911, there's a bulk freighter in Ohio. And a tugboat from 1903, 1918, uh, a towboat. Huh. From 1893, there was a battleship that they had in Portland, Oregon. A battleship from 1893. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, unfortunately, only some parts survive today. Oh. Yeah. Still cool, I argue. Oh, very cool. Uh, let's see. Pennsylvania has a protected cruiser and a tugboat, 1892 and 1902, respectively. You can go see a bark from 1877 in Galveston. Wow. Uh, but, uh, the USS Texas was built in 1910, so she is a World War One era battleship. Wow, that's exactly what we were looking for, and it was there all along. It was there all along. All that meandering for that. Well, you mentioned it earlier in the podcast, and so that's cool. So if, if y'all have an opportunity, you should check it out. After she's out of the docks. She's in the docks right, right. now being re being repaired. But she's also been refitted so many times. She's not in her World War One configuration. Anymore. Right. But yeah, just about every state will have museum ships. So we 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 we, we uh, meandered quite a bit on this episode. 
<laughs> um, so to to finish uh, World War One out, <laughs> uh, battleships were never intended for anti-submarine warfare, but there is a instance of a submarine being sunk by a dreadnought battleship. The HMS dreadnought rammed and sank a <laughs> the German submarine U twenty nine. Oh, this man. happened in 1915 off of Moray Firth. That's awesome. Yeah, I guess it goes back to what you were mentioning, uh, how the submarines of that era had to surface more often, either to attack yeah. or for whatever reason. So, yeah. Well, also, if they're damaged, they have to come to the surface or, you know, die. Right. Not, not a hard choice. Now, there were torpedo boats that did have some successes against battleships. For instance, when they took out the HMS Goliath, this was during the Darnell's campaign, and when the SMS Estevan was torpedoed by the Italian torpedo boats. But, you know, in you know huge battles, these torpedo boats and destroyers were usually not able to get close enough to the battleships to hurt them. The only battleship sunk in pretty much a fleet battle by torpedoes or destroyers was a obsolete German pre-dreadnought, the HMS Homern, and she was sank by destroyers during the night in Jutland. Yeah, Jutland. That was uh, devastating for the Germans, for sure. That's where I learned the term uh, having your T crossed, and that, that I was fascinated by it. I was like, what in the world is that? And that's when all of your ships are like the top of a capital T, horizontal, and all their ships are the vertical part of their T, and you, all of your ships can fire on all of their ships, but not really all of their ships can fire on any of your ships, and so it's a strategic, like, it's, it's a coup de grace in any naval engagement. And it happened twice. The English did it to the Germans twice in that battle, and so they got their butts kicked for sure. Yeah, the, you're bringing your broadside to bear, but they're not able to bring that to bear. Right. So, uh, to finish out World War One, uh, the Germans, their high fleet, were determined not to engage the British without the assistance of submarines. And because the submarines were off-raiding commerce traffic, the, the fleet pretty much just stayed in for the war. So... Uh, we're going to go ahead and leave battleships there, thanks to our meander. But I, I thought it was an enjoyable meander. Yeah, it was a, it was a friendly stroll. <laughs> so we have teamed up with HeroCards.us. We like to end each of our main episodes honoring one of our fallen angels, and today we are going to honor. Chief Special Warfare Boat Operator, Zacharias Edward Bobe. He His hometown is San Jose, California. He was assigned to Navy Special Warfare Advanced Training Command, Coronado, California. His honors include the Joint Service Commendation Medal, which he received three times, Navy Marine Corps Commendation, that he received three times, one of them with valor. His date of sacrifice was May 28th, 2015 in Chula Vista, California. He was 39 years old. Zach Bobe 
was born in Santa Clara, California, on November 29th, 1975, and became the third generation in his family to serve his country in the U.S. military. During the Vietnam War, his father, Gary, served as a Navy aviation electrician on a P-3 Orion anti-submarine patrol aircraft. Both of his grandfathers served in World War II. Anthony Goularty was a Navy gunner's mate, and Milford Buob was an Air Force civil engineer. So as a boy, Zach's family lived in San Jose, California, where he graduated from Independence High School in 1994. He played soccer and had a passion for rebuilding and riding dirt bikes with his father. He continued his love for motorcycles for the rest of his life. After high school, Zach worked briefly in a cabinet-making shop, then decided to enlist in the United States Navy on March 8, 1995, carrying on his family's tradition of service to his country. Zach was sent to Naval Station Great Lakes, north of Chicago, where he completed basic training in December 1995 and remained for Gunner's Mate A School. From 96 to 2000, he was stationed in San Diego, California, aboard the USS Antium, CG-54. And his tour of duty included three deployments as a gunner's mate on the guided missile cruiser in support of Operations Southern Watch and Vigilant Sentinel in the Arabian Sea. In 2002, he went to Naval Base Coronado in California for Naval Special Warfare Combatant Craft Crewman training. After completing the rigorous course, he was assigned to Special Boat Team 12 in Coronado. Special Boat Teams are elite units used for Navy SEAL insertion and extraction on clandestine missions. At Coronado, Zach was qualified on the Mark V Special Operations Craft and the Rigid Hull Inflatable Boat Combatant Craft. According to U.S. Naval SEAL Travis Lively, quote, I have worked extensively with both Mark V and RIB operators. In my experience, they are always the first to show up and the last to leave. The bottom line, boat guys are the unsung heroes of the naval special warfare community. SBC Boeb completed five deployments from 2002 to 2010, and he transferred to a forward deployed special warfare unit for a year in 2011, then returned to special boat team 12 in 2012 after another deployment in 2014. According to the U.S. Navy, he served with distinction at SBT-12 for over 11 years, both in the continental United States and overseas in the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia in support of the Naval Special Warfare Mission. His last offshore duty was to provide security with Special Boat Team 12 for President Barack Obama's month-long Christmas visit to Hawaii in December 2014. In 2015, he served as Operations Chief and Instructor at Naval Special Warfare Advanced Training Command in Coronado. And as a lifelong motorcycle enthusiast, he was riding on a highway in Chilo Vista, California, when he was killed in a road rage incident on May 28th of that year. He was 39 years old. He served his country in the United States for 20 years. His mother, Kathy, told the local San Diego NBC affiliate, Quote, the military was his second family. At the Naval Special Warfare Advanced Training Command in Coronado, the classroom in which Zach was an instructor was named the Zacharias E. Buib Classroom in his honor. 
So Chief Special Warfare Boat Operator Zacharias Edward Buib, thank you. Thank you. And so, Christoph, will you please take us out? Uh, certainly. Uh, thank you all for listening to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If you would like to reach out to us, please feel free to do so via email at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at USN, as in Navy, History Pod. Uh, we also have a Discord channel. You can find that in the show notes. And in the Discord channel, you can talk to us and other fans from around the world. So it's very exciting. So please uh, tell a friend, tell a loved one, and share the love. Thanks, y'all. And with that... We're going to wish you a fair winds and following seas. Goodbye. See you later. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing. <laughs>